Part two, what a contrast. The reason that I believe that the Holy Spirit actually authored these two lists is for the purpose of contrast. But it's contrast in relationship to what was said in verse 16. If you remember there in verse 16, here in chapter five of the book of Galatians, you find this command to walk in the spirit and the result of that is so that you will not walk in the flesh. In other words, there's a direct correlation between our walking in the spirit and not walking in the flesh. And so Paul then proceeds to give us this negative list, which we saw last time, these things which we should not be. These things that if you were to look at that list, you would go in a comparative way, this tells me what I'm not supposed to be. He now moves to the positive. He he turns us back towards the things that we are in Christ and very specifically talks about the fruit, not the works, because the works are products of our flesh. The fruit is the product of the spirit. The fruit is that which comes out of you because you actually are part of the vine. You've been grafted in. You now receive that nourishment from who you are in Christ. As a Christian, as a believer, who's someone who names the name of the Lord, you are actually part of the vine. And as a part of the vine, you are going to produce fruit. And that fruit, the Bible says, is going to look a very specific way. It's going to look a whole lot like Jesus, amen? And so as Paul now completes this thought, this diagnostic tool of what we're not supposed to be, and then what we are supposed to be, he now reminds us of exactly what we should look like if our action fruit comes from our attitude fruit. In other words, what's inside makes its way outside because of who we are in Christ. We're going to see that we will actually begin to live our lives in a way that replicates who Jesus is. We'll pick up in verse 22, uh, just four verses today. And so would you pray with me uh, and we'll begin to read the word together. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for your word and how it instructs me, instructs us, and how we ought to live our lives so that we can best show the world who you are. And so, Lord, we pray that these things that would contrast, Lord, who we might be in the flesh with who we are in the spirit, we pray that we'd live each one. Lord, we pray that that most supreme example of your love would just shine forth from us. Bless us as we study. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And it begins here, but the fruit of the spirit is love. And I would draw your attention to the original language here, and it is not clear from English, but it is very clear in the original language in Greek, that the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is actually love. And so many times we're tempted to break these things down into individual fruits of the Spirit, but it is better that we look at it in the way I believe the Holy Spirit authored this, The fruit of the Spirit in your life is actually explained in one word because God himself said he is love, so the fruit of the Spirit in the believer's life is also love. 
And what love then does, the way love then behaves, and the way we could identify things in our lives as being of God or not of God, would be first in love, but also in these sub-characteristics that follow it, joy, peace, gentleness, faithfulness, and such. And so as you look at this, I, I would pray that you would realize that I could be gentle and actually not be loving. But if I'm really being loving, I will always be gentle. If I have the love of God in my life in such a way that it's the driving motivational force in my life, in other words, I want to be just like Jesus, then I will be faithful. I'm going to have joy even in the midst of trial. And so as we look at this, let's take a look at these next characteristics that really are of the fruit of the spirit which is love joy peace long-suffering kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and the one that we all wish were not in the list self-control against such there is no law the Holy Spirit writing through the Apostle Paul says, look, these, these things don't need laws to, to restrain them. I mean, who needs to restrain being faithful? Who needs to have a law governed being joy-filled? Amen? Or, or, or that person who has this tremendous peace or is able to suffer long. You don't need a law that restrains suffering long and being kind. And so he says, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. For if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. And so he begins by reminding us that the fruit of the spirit, the singular fruit of the spirit or the work that the spirit does is the very same thing that you would expect being as for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, amen? That John, as we just saw in John's letters, said God actually is love. And those who love are of God, and those who do not love are not of God. Now he's using a very specific Greek word here because our English language, we use one word, love, and it is a myriad of things that one could say is like God's love or not like God's love. We use love and we might actually mean lust. We use love and we might actually mean deep friendship. We use love and, and we might possibly mean the love of family. We use love in a lot of different ways, but we use a singular word. Not so in the Greek language. There were four words. And the word that's used here is the word agape, very specifically agapeo, the action of loving. And so the reason that's important is this love, if we're walking in the spirit, God is love, is God's love. It's not lust. It isn't erotic love. It's not sexual love. It's not the love of friends. Though in marriage, all of those kinds of loves are contained in a marriage relationship. And it's not just simple friendship. It's the love that put Jesus on Calvary's cross. It's the love that he exemplified by dying in your place. It's the love that God 
had in heaven that sent his only begotten son into the world, the fruit of the spirit is the love of God. It's us being like God is. It's you and I absolutely making visible what God is in this world. It's us being like Jesus. It's the principal reason that we are called Christians, which simply means little Christs. We're supposed to be a whole bunch like the King of Kings. And so the fruit of the Spirit, in that sense, comes from us being grafted in to who God is. It's being part of the vine. It comes from us being attached to him in such a way that our spiritual nutrition comes out of the vine itself. You see, very often we look at this passage and we almost think it's something we need to do. It's something we really need to work hard at. And while there is a part of us that needs to engage God in what he wants to do, it really is from us abiding in him. It's for me being so tied in to who God is that I start to function the very same way he would if he were in my place. Can you imagine if every Christian actually acted like Jesus? Actually spoke like Jesus? Gave counsel like Jesus? Touched people's needs like Jesus? Healed people like Jesus? If every single member of the church actually walked in the spirit, because walking in the spirit is Christ's love in us, if we all did that, then we would literally be wandering around the world touching people exactly the way Jesus would touch them if he were there. So the fruit of the spirit is love. Why is that important to us? Because we have to choose whether we want to be walking in the spirit or not, amen? I can be other things. I can be not God's love, amen? Anybody, don't raise your hand. I don't want to know about what happened at home last night. We can choose not to walk in the spirit. I can choose to be everything but walking in the spirit. And I can choose to not be God's love. And so what happens when I'm doing this, two basic things occur. I actually put off, because I am grafted into the vine and am being like Jesus, I actually put off the deeds of the flesh. Those things that we saw last time, those contrasting things, the bitterness, the anger, the hatred, the vanity, those things have to go because they're inconsistent with the nature of God's love. God's not going to do those things. He's not going to be those things. He's not going to expose other people to those things. That's the first thing that happens. The second thing is I start to automatically pop out fruit. Just as the vine automatically will produce grapes, so will a Christian properly grafted into the vine produce fruit that looks like the Lord. It's a result of you being who you are. So it's not really work in that sense. It's me saying, look, Lord, I I want to be a fruitful vine. Pluck the stuff off me that needs to go and lift me up out of the mud. If I've gotten dirty, clean me up, put me back on the trellis. And so ultimately, this action fruit, the things that are here, 
are really internal fruit. They're attitude fruit that comes out of me because of who I am in Christ. And the truth is you were created for this purpose. You were created in Christ Jesus to bear fruit. That's why Jesus said, everyone who is a part of the good vine produces good fruit, and the good vine will always produce some good fruit, and a bad vine can't produce fruit at all. It's part of who you are. It's your new nature in Christ. It's what happens to you when you say yes to the offer of God's grace. And so what happens in your life is this fruit that comes out of you, this being fruitful, this walking in the Spirit, is actually a manifestation of your salvation. You can't help but manifest some fruit of the Spirit. Because it is no longer you who lives, it's Christ who lives in you, amen? And the life that you now live, you live for Him. Now some of us, because we are more surrendered to Him, there are more evidences of that spiritual walk that's somebody who said lord give me everything take out all of the bad and give me all the good i have to say yes to those things as far as god's concerned because he's also given me a free will so i can choose to hang on to a few chunks of the flesh that's why paul said the deeds of the flesh are evident amen So if you're wandering around constantly lying, that's something you've hung on to. God doesn't want it in your life, but you hung on to it. So now that's an area that stains the good work that God wants to do in your life. That's a place where it doesn't look like you're walking in the Spirit. But these other things that we now see in this passage, especially this first fruit, the love of God, It actually defines you. When Paul writes to the church in 1 Corinthians 13, which we covered not long ago in our study, in 1 Corinthians, it says, now abide in faith and hope and love, but the interesting greatest of these is love. Why is that? Because that's who God is. At the end of every day, as you walk this life on this earth, God is always going to be love. He's also just. He's powerful. He's majestic. He's holy. He's righteous. But above everything else, he's love. It's a supreme reason for him sending his own son into the world. Amen? It's his motivation. You might look at it that way. It's like everything God does is motivated by one thing. Jesus loves you. God loves you. If God were just coming to this earth, if Jesus came simply to prove his righteousness, then you could look at the world and go, wow, he didn't do such a good job. Because the whole world isn't righteous. But he came and died in our place. That proved his love. And now we receive that love and we grow in that love and we begin to look like his love. That is an individual thing. But as his children, we're not righteous all the time, amen? We're not holy all the time. We're supposed to be, and we're working towards that end, but all of that stems out of who we are in love. The righteousness I have is because he first loved me, amen? 
The joy that I have is because God loves me. The peace I have, God loves me. And so these things are an outflow of love. But in order for love to be real, it has to be volitional. It's the same reason that when you fall in love with your spouse, your spouse has to also fall in love with you. Otherwise, we call that unrequited love. Amen? You can love someone else, but they can choose to not love you back. It is the loving back that validates the love. And the same is true between you and God. God first loved you. He proved it by sending his own son into the world to die in your place, but you must love him back. It's volitional. And if you love him back, then that love grows. This last Thursday, Connie and I celebrated our 43rd wedding anniversary. Amen? Over the years, our love has grown. When we were in our I hate to say this, early 20s, which is a long time ago. We had a very small understanding of what marriage would take. When you first get married, you can live in the back of a car and it's fine. It just is. It's like there's this newness to it. But after about the second day of living in the back of a 1971 Pinto, you're not into that anymore. It's got to grow a little bit. And so you get an apartment, and but he's got jobs. And your love starts to mature, doesn't it? Anybody in here been married for very long and had your love endure all things, exactly as 1 Corinthians 13 says? Some, some difficult things. You've gone through some hardship in your life, and it's actually part of the love. It's the endurance of those things, isn't it? You want to know what real love looks like. Endure some hardship. Go through some sickness and disease, financial problems. Endure all things, and then you will begin to see a very deep love. That is why this passage presents what it does. We love God. He first loved us, and because we love him, our love is supposed to grow. And now he begins to tell us what that growing love looks like. It's not an option. This is a command, folks. This is what we are supposed to be as the body of Christ. And so he gives us eight characteristics of what agape love in individual ways begins to look like. The first of which is joy. The world needs more joy, doesn't it? Now, we live in a world where it's tough to find joy in that sense. But here's what happens as a believer because of who you are in Christ. I have a joy that is actually separated from the circumstances of this world. I have joy not simply because I have all good things going on in my life. I haven't met a person yet that has all good things going on in their life. Amen? Everybody experiences difficulties. But what I have in the midst of that is the very same thing that the disciples have, the thing that Nehemiah talked about, Nehemiah 8. He said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Why did he say that? Because that joy that comes from the Lord because of who I am in him, in his love, transcends every last thing in my life. It is not attached to my circumstances. 
It's because of who I am in him. My, my joy isn't simply because life is good. My joy comes from the fact that God loves me and I love him and in spite of what's going on in the world, I can still have joy in that. No matter what the world brings. That's why Jesus said, the joy that I give you He will also say the same thing about peace, by the way, which is next. The joy that I give you is not like the world's joy. The peace that I give you is not like the world's peace. Because it is knowing that all is well between me and him. That's where my joy comes from. So here's what happens in that circumstance that's negative. What's the worst thing that can happen to us? We get killed. We die trying to love Jesus supremely. What's the next thing that happens? Enter into the joy of the Lord. Amen? So here I am. I'm living my life. I'm doing my thing, and I get killed doing it. The next thing that happens is supreme joy. So I live my life knowing that when that happens, I'm going to have supreme joy. I'm not deriving my joy from today. I'm deriving my joy from heaven. Amen? That's why he says, out of that love of God flows the joy of God. He next moves to peace. It's that tranquility of mind. It's what happens when I think about the Lord. When I think about the world... I don't have much peace. When I think about individual circumstances in my life, I may not have what we would call the absence of conflict. That's what the world views peace as. We have all kinds of things going on all over the world. In some places, there's an absence of conflict. In other places, there's conflict. But that's not the type of peace that's in view here. Just like the joy... Which, by the way, Jesus attached of all the crazy things in the world when he spoke about that joy in John 16, he attached it to childbirth. Now, I've never, I've been in the delivery room quite a few times, not only for my own children, but for others. Problem pregnancies, things that are going on, I've been asked to be there. You know, I'm standing, dad in the back, and I've never heard a, I've never heard a mom yet go, Praise the Lord, this is so awesome. No, there's usually some screaming and crying and lots of things going on. So it's not the circumstantial joy of the pain of childbirth. It's the joy of seeing that baby. Amen? And knowing that this is a part of you. That kind of joy. Now look at it. Attach it to peace. What did Jesus say? Don't let your heart be troubled. He says, I'm going to give you peace. But it's not peace like the world. That that John 14 peace that he's speaking about, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. But not as the world gives peace do I give you. I give you my peace. Why? Because my heaven is taken care of. My eternity is taken care of. God loves me. Christ proved it. I put my faith and hope and trust in him, and I have peace. You remember what Jesus said to the disciples' storm? 
after he pushed them into the storm? You remember what he did? They're on the shore. They're all bummed out. Jesus puts them in. He, it, the scripture says he made them get in the boat and then he pushed them out into the storm. Do you remember what he said when the storm was raging and the boat was filling with water and they are freaking out? Well, you know, this is really a problem with the, uh, with the weather over Mount Hermon. It's, uh, it's almost 10,000 feet and it's colder up there and so the cold air rushes down the mountain slopes and the catabolic winds come across the, the edge of the Sea of Galilee and you know, I checked with the meteorologist and you know, if we could just put up a big wall and, and we, we could kind of stop the winds and split them up and they could go around the edge of the sea and he just simply said to the storm, peace be still. Amen? So he has command over the storm for supernatural reasons. That's why I have supernatural peace. The peace that I have doesn't come from everything being okay in the world sense. It comes from me knowing the Prince of Peace. So I walk in his peace. The same thing is true for long-suffering and patience. You think the world needs a little more long-suffering today? I do. And another interesting thing, because it comes out of God's love, it actually says, and be loving and long-suffering. You could put love in front of each of these. Be loving and joyful. Be loving and peace-filled. Be loving and long-suffering. You see, because here's how we suffer. I'm suffering. Like, I've been married for a week. And I did not plan on this. You know, I, you know what I'm saying? We sometimes suffer so that the whole world will know that we're suffering. We wander around, oh, life. Like I'm in a living hell. This kind of long suffering actually rejoices in the fact that it has opportunity to pay a price that is hurtful and irritating and even sometimes destructive. That's why Jesus said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He didn't say, man, I can't believe I created iron and they did this with the nails. Or, 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 I, I, made the, or I made them and look what they've done to me. Jesus lovingly suffered on the cross because of my sin and he said, forgive me. It's because of who I am in him. See, it flows out of his love. It's real easy to see. And so he suffered long. I don't know if you've ever pondered the resurrection account and the crucifixion account and put it all together the last week of Jesus' life. It was horrific. And at not any point in time during that final week of his life did you hear Jesus complain one time that it was unfair or unjust or I can't believe this was happening to me. After all, I am God's son. No, he suffered long. He still suffers long because of me. He's still suffering long with me today and you. That love is also kind. 
And so kindness is added to this very long list of the characteristics of what agape love looks like. When I walk in the Spirit, that love exudes out of me kindness. It's genuine and tender care for other people. Now, sometimes we care for other people simply out of sympathy, amen? This is not that. It's greater than that. This so identifies with how they feel and what they're going through that if possible, you would take that for them. Whatever they're going through, you would take it. It's not, it's not you being weak or you, you being overly emotive. It's not because you lack conviction about doing something for them. It, it's you are so in tune with what's going on with them that gently you just simply want to do what you can to make their life better. That's what Jesus did, didn't he? When he came to this earth, did he come to make his life better? No, he came to suffer and die in my place. You talk about kindness. Because I didn't deserve for him to die for me. Matter of fact, I didn't deserve for him to die for me. I deserve for him to kill me. And instead, he came and died in my place. You talk about kindness. God's love in action. Genuine, tender concern. Knowing my weakness and your weakness. You see, he was tested in all ways as we are, and yet without sin. We were tested and sinned. And because of our weakness, Jesus took his strength and gave it to us in kindness. This is life-altering things for us if we'll allow the Lord to do this work in us. It's a type of kindness the world has absolutely no answer for. That's why there's no law necessary against these things. Nobody's going to go, well, you're just being too kind. You got to stop this kindness thing. You know, forget the joy, the peace. I'm really sick of you suffering long. Could you just get angry and bitter? Oh, it isn't going to happen. This is Jesus stuff. It's why Jesus could say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I actually care that the burden that you're carrying around is too heavy for you. I want to lift that burden off of you. I don't want you to carry it anymore. Take my yoke. Find rest for your soul. That's our example that's how God's love looks. That's what it does. The final four of these characteristics of God's agape love. Goodness. Now, now before you go too terribly far in thinking you know what goodness is, and maybe some of you do, goodness is a lot greater than what you think. Because it's actually excellence. It's being really good at having peace. It's being really good at being gentle. It is excellent at kindness. It's a deep proclivity towards absolutely suffering long. 
It is literally goodness added to anything and everything. It's active kindness. It's being super good at faithfulness. The most excellent, gentle person you ever met. Goodness is actually a quality that you could assign to every other one of these. And realistically, you could link these all together and put them into a single word, which I wouldn't advise you to do. It would be very long. And you would come up with the right thought. But goodness in this sense is just the sweet tenderness of Jesus like the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. You talk about being good to her. Talk about being kind to her. Everybody in town knew what her her problem was, right? The whole town's going, yeah, stoner. But Jesus was so good at being loving and kind as to be excellent at being loving and kind and non-judgmental. He looked at the woman and he said, woman, where are your accusers? I don't accuse you. Go and sin no more. He was good to her. He didn't drag her through the streets and look at this wretched person. He protected her. He stood up for her. That's moral excellence. That's being good when someone doesn't deserve goodness. I mean, let's face it. Whatever she would have gotten in that circumstance or situation was her doing. But God said, no. Forbid it not. You you can't do this. I came to seek and save that which is lost, not prove that there's a problem. Faithfulness. I love this one. Because in all these things, you can kind of be partway in and partway out. All the way in is the way Jesus says. That's what his love did. The Son of Man didn't consider it robbery to go to the cross and die the death of the cross. He actually said, look, this is what I want. And he gives us the reason for the joy that was set before him. Think about it. You talk about faithfulness. You ever thought about where you would have lost your faithfulness in Jesus' story? He was here for 32, maybe 33 years. And all along the way, He was hated, despised, cast out, had no place to live. Everybody was after him after a while. His own friends abandoned him. And what did he do? He was faithful all the way to the cross. Amen? Amen? That's what God's love looks like. That's a faithful friend. That's a faithful husband. That's a faithful wife. That is a faithful son, a faithful daughter, a faithful grandchild. That is someone who says, I will do this to the end. I will not be moved. I am unwavering from what you've called me to do, God. I'm going to see it all the way through. How about gentleness? You ever thought about being gentle while you're being loving and kind and joy-filled? It's actually best translated meekness. It's really the same word. But it's fully restrained power. 
Each of you has power. Some of you, in a worldly sense, have more power than others. But we all have power. It's called the power of choice. I can choose to love. I can choose not to love. I can choose to do. I can choose not to do. And I can choose the things that I do or do not do. I have the power of choice. We all have power. But now imagine that you are the Son of God. You are God incarnate in human flesh. And your choice is to love us to the uttermost. It's to go all the way to saying, to tell us diet is finished. You see, that's what Jesus did. And he was gentle all the way to the end, restraining his power, restraining his authority. He created the dirt that the cross was standing in. He created the trees that the cross was made out of and the iron that fashioned the nails. He created man in his own image and yet he restrained his authority and power over his creation to say, go ahead and kill me. It's what I came to do. That's gentleness. Imagine if every Christian in the world possessed that kind of gentleness, willing to, why do you think Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. It's walking in the Spirit. It's me saying yes to what God wants for me. It's, it's primarily towards God, but it works out towards each other. See, if I treat you that way, who doesn't fall in love with somebody who has authority and restrains it for the benefit of someone else or uses it exclusively for the benefit of someone else? That's why if you walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Amen? Can I tell you there's a reason that self-controls last? Self-control's in there for a reason. And we don't like it. Because all these things, they're for you. They're for me. You see, I've been called to walk in joy. I've been called to walk in peace. I have been called to walk in kindness. I have been called to walk in gentleness. I have been called to walk in faithfulness. All these things are incumbent upon me to say yes to God's plan for my life because I can say no. I can say, well, I don't really care about what other people think. I don't really want to do what's best for them. I want to do what's best for me. I'm sick and tired of being gentle. I'm going to get me some revenge right now. You see, I can choose with my volition that God has given me to not do what is walking in the Spirit. I can resist that. I can say, God, I'm not doing what you would do here. I'm going to do what I want to do here. And so the final thing, after we're instructed to love God supremely and love like God, and then these characteristics of what it looks like when it is lived out in the world, and then one final thing is added at the end that is so important because if I'm going to control my thoughts, I'm going to control my longings, my desires, my hormones, my emotions, my passion, my appetite, if I'm going to have that happen, I have to say yes to God. I say, Lord, I'm struggling here. I want what you want. 
because you can do what you want. But God's saying, I would like you to live for me. And so that self-control, that's an important part. Now here's the good news. He'll help you with the self-control too. That also is part of being grafted into the vine because that's who you are in Christ, amen? Jesus controlled himself. He was restrained while he was here. Remember who he was. He was God, amen? So the whole time he was here, he restrained himself. Don't think for a moment that he couldn't have just gone into the temple and go, who do you think I am? Wrong. And you. You've been teaching here in the temple for how many? Oh, that's right, 57 years. Who do you think I am? He restrained himself. People that were adamantly against him, not only did he let them live, he looked at Judas and said, are you going to betray the son of man with a kiss? Right up to the end, he's given Judas an opportunity to change his mind. Repent, turn around, go the other way. If I'm Jesus, I'm sitting at the table when he's dipping bread, his part's going to have hydrochloric acid on it. It's like, doesn't taste too good, does it, Judas? Well, let your burned tongue be a lesson right now. You see, that's how we would, we would look at things like that, wouldn't we? If we're really honest with ourselves, we go, I don't think I could have done that knowing that Judas was going to betray me. He's sitting next to me in the seat of honor and he's going to dip the bread with me. Nah, he's not getting off with this one. But Jesus restrained even his understanding. Never did he not know what was going on. He didn't walk into the garden and go, wow, this is a mystery. Never saw this coming. He knew he'd be betrayed. He knew his friends would turn on him. He knew Peter was going to deny him three times. He didn't look at Peter and go, Peter, man, you were the worst friend ever. He restrained himself. And we need to restrain ourselves. We just say, look, I have the power of Christ in me which is my hope of glory, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? Amen? Amen. Without him, we can do nothing. We know that's also true. Amen? Amen? So if I have him and he is love, and these things are all part of who I am because I'm grafted into the vine, then I should be victorious in the way I walk. He ends with just a simple result. and I'll wrap this up. That's why he says against such things there is no law. The law can't judge you when you're walking in utter gentleness and kindness and meekness and self-control. The, the law can't do to you what it can do to those who are not walking that way. You see, if, if you're walking in anger and bitterness and hate, you need laws to restrain that. Now the problem is, we're not home yet, amen? So we still have a sin nature. And much like, I, I forgive me if this is offensive to you, if you're here and you're a vegan. You know, if you 
think that this is kind of gory, but it, I, I grew up here in Southern California when we still had farm animals, okay? Now we import them from other places, but we had chickens. And every once in a while, my, my grandma would go out in the yard, she'd grab a chicken, do one of these with it, clop the head off, and the chicken would run around for a while. Now the reason I'm saying that to you is that's exactly what happened at the cross to your sin. It's been killed. Your sin nature was crucified at the cross of Christ. But it hasn't figured that out yet. Your, your sin nature doesn't know that it's dead. Your sin nature is still trying to do something. It doesn't have any idea and it doesn't really care what it does. It's just still got enough life in it to give you some issues. And so it's running around. So I need to submit to the fact that my sin nature is actually dead. And instead of helping the dead chicken run around the yard, I need to finish the chicken off. I need to say, you know what? I'm not helping you do any more of your dumb things. I'm going to resist those things and watch the devil flee. I'm not going to help the devil get into my space anymore. So because of that new life that I have, I have full, total, and complete capacity to resist absolutely every sin. The question is, will I? Because he crucified my flesh at the cross. When I said yes to him, the victory's won. I'm going to heaven. The only thing that's left is the living between now and when I get there. And if I will walk in the spirit, then I shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I'll I'll agree with God. You know what? My flesh is dead. I'm not walking that way anymore. I'm not going back to those old relationships. I'm not engaging in those behaviors. I'm not using those words. I refuse to be drugged back to the old dead chicken Jeff. Amen? Amen? That's who I am now. The only question for me is how much of that do I want? Do I want all spirit? Or do I want some spirit and a little bit of flesh? I pray that we would see this and that as Paul would write to the church at Colossae, also the church at Ephesus, by the way, that we would walk worthy of our calling in Christ. That I'd walk in the Spirit. I'd make those choices. They're difficult. But I would say yes to what God wants for me. There'd be no part of that old dead life that's still visible in me. And when I do, what you're going to see coming out of me is going to be love and joy peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That's how we live dead to the flesh and alive in Christ. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Maybe you're here today and 
the Lord has been speaking to you. Possibility that there might be some today that have come and you've yet to make a, a decision to follow Christ. These things are impossible without knowing Christ personally. They're hard even when you do know Jesus. Amen? It's hard to walk in the Spirit all the time. But notice I said hard, not impossible. There's a big difference between those two words. So if you don't know the Lord and you want to know Him, we have a team in our prayer room that would love to just share the basic gospel with you. Right over to my left. And lead you in a very simple prayer, just receiving Christ, asking Him to forgive your sin. For the rest of us, it's time for the church to wake up to these realities and just simply live this way. Time's short, family. We're going to be in heaven before we know it. That's what we do now that counts. It's how we present the Lord to this world that's going to be remembered. And so let's do it well. Let's walk in the Spirit. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the work of your Spirit in our lives where we, we again just cry out to you, help us, oh God, with our weaknesses. Lord, those areas where that resident flesh, our unredeemed humanness still peaks uh, through that glory every once in a while. And we, we pray that you'd help us to crucify the flesh. Lord, help us to be dead to it not entertain it, not walk in it, not even give it the time of day. Lord, we thank you that because we're your children and grafted into that vine, uh, that there is a guarantee that we'll produce some fruit. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd prune where you need to prune. Pull us out of the miry clay and, and set our feet on a rock. Lord, if we're walking in mud, would you help us to get clean and stay clean? Lord, help us to exercise that self-control. Bless us, Lord, as we endeavor to follow you in this, in this difficult world. Strengthen those with feeble hands. Lord, guard our minds. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.